Hello, and welcome to the Think Peace podcast, where peace crosses the mind, the show that explores the intersection of the human brain, psyche, and obstacles and opportunities to forging a lasting peace. This podcast is for those who are curious as to what it is about humans that makes peace so appealing, yet so elusive. I'm your host, Colette Rausch, and today we're going to talk about trauma, what it is, how it affects us and our relationships, and ways to heal trauma. Our guests today are Dr. Abby Blakesley and Dr. Glindy Nickerson. Abby Blakesley is a faculty member at the Somatic Experiencing Trauma Institute. She holds a PhD in clinical and somatic psychology and is a licensed marriage and family therapist. She integrates somatic experiencing with clinical research, secondary trauma interventions, and the psychobiological principles of attachment and shock trauma. Glindy Nickerson is also on the faculty of the Somatic Experiencing Trauma Institute. She holds a master's and PhD in clinical psychology. For her doctorate, her participant-informed research explored what Tibetan ex-political prisoners found effective for their own trauma healing. She recognizes includes awareness of cultural, historical, and systematic trauma as part of the healing process. So welcome, Abby and Glindy, to the Think Peace podcast. I'm so happy to have you here this morning. And what I'd like to do is start out, and how about if each of you lets our listeners know, how did you even get interested in the field of trauma? What was the journey that brought you here today? Well, I can just start because my journey also relates to Abby because Abby was my assistant in my SE training when I first started and I had had an accident about a year before I started training in SE and uh, I had had these night terrors that were happening or what people called night terrors. I would wake up in the middle of the night around 2 or 3 a.m. and I would feel like I was falling. And it was very upsetting, very disorganizing, and just bewildering. And I started to work with Abby as my somatic experiencing practitioner. And this is after six months of trying to do other kinds of talk therapy. And when I started to work with Abby, the first day that I worked with her, she had said, listening to what happened to me, because I was hit on the side, I was a pedestrian, I got hit on the left side, and I flew in the air, and then I landed a second time. And her words were so powerful for me. She said, I think part of you is still in midair. And it made so much sense to my physiology. But then, in addition, right, that recognition was followed by being able to have some completion of that feeling of being in in midair through doing some some somatic experiencing um, processes. And within two or three sessions, I didn't have any night terrors anymore. And that had gone on for a year. And that was what really sealed the deal for me. If this stuff works, I don't want anyone to suffer with what I went through. And it it was such a clicking in of acknowledgement from a body wisdom level that that this is so supportive for not just my physiology, my psychology, that they are one and the same. And when I saw that that this was resolution also so quickly and so completely of, of the symptom, it really motivated me to pursue oh, that's learning a, more about it. 
That's a really powerful story and very descriptive of why this really resonated with you and the issue of trauma became something very personal. Mm-hmm. And Abby, what brought you? What is your story? Well, Glindia, it's always, I, I feel very blessed to have been part of your healing journey. And now we've had, you know, many different relationships. Glindia is now faculty and a colleague of mine for the Somatic Experiencing Trauma Institute. And, you know, for me, it's really, I I think of it, it's just like a basic reward system. My parents gave me ice cream when I would rub their backs. So, you know, I I early on got this nice dopamine reward for being a healer or offering something to someone else or helping somebody to relax, helping someone to feel better. So after college, I ended up in a bodywork career. And during that time, one of the things that I was fascinated by was how people would have memories from experiences, things that happened to them from years before. And they would have some sort of release, whether it was in the fascia or the muscles, or there'd be an emotional release. Now, I wasn't trained to be able to really work with the memories themselves. So I just held space with curiosity. But I started to get interested in the mind and body connection. And I asked one of my bodywork mentors, what should I read? And she said, Ram Das, how can I help? And Peter Levine, Waking the Tiger. And when I read about Waking the Tiger and I read about this incredible combination between the mind and the body and the recognition that we are so much more than just our thoughts mm-hmm. and that we can heal the body in order to change many of the ways that we perceive the world or ways that we feel stuck. I went right into that that study and I started studying somatic experiencing. I got a master's after that and then I got a PhD after that all in somatic psychology. So that's been a lot of my healing path and I've continued to study this sort of neuroscience, mind-body integration and kind of this deeper non-conscious ways of healing that we can, that is so profound and so important, I think, for reorganization for ourselves and then also collectively within our societies. You both have talked about how your experiences, your life experiences really led you to this field and working and getting degrees in the field. And when we talk about the word trauma, and you've used some words, the connection to mind-body, the somatic psychology aspect, dopamine, all of these types of things. How does all of that play out when, when we try to define trauma? If somebody were to say to you, define trauma as trauma 101, how would you describe that and why it matters and how it impacts the individual and those around us? So I can just uh, start with something that Peter Levine has stated, which is that trauma originates in the nervous system and not in the event. From an SE perspective, from a somatic experiencing perspective, we have experiences that impact our nervous system. And because of those experiences, they are locked in in some way and create a certain uh, level of survival energy that gets trapped Mm -hmm. in the system. And when that happens, 
our autonomic nervous system gets conditioned into a certain way of responding to events in the present moment or not responding as it may be. So when often people think of trauma, they're often thinking of that there's a certain and particular event that's happening. Yeah, so as we're working with a little bit more of talking about trauma with folks, when we're talking with with our clients, often they come in and they speak of trying to get to the heart of something that happened before. And what we're listening to as somatic experiencing practitioners is what we're seeing in the body, what we're also hearing in the voice, what we're seeing in terms of different signs of regulation or dysregulation in the nervous system. And that's what we're really giving our attention to, as well as developing the rapport and working with folks. So in that in helping people to really listen to their own nervous system, what can happen for folks is that trauma and their understanding of what they're there for starts to starts to shift a little bit. So if we were to even right here, look at what happened. So Glindy was giving a very nice description around trauma. Mm-hmm. And then there was an auditory sound which began to split her attention. And this goes into when we think about trauma, something occurs to us, there's some kind of information from the five senses comes in through this, you know, our sensory cortex, right? So Glindy hears the sound, not this is necessarily traumatic, right? But there's a sound. And then there's an alert. So we go into a hardwired response that we hold from evolution, from our deep ancestry, and and that there's a predictable sequence of survival that we will move through. And this is the lower brain, right? This is not the, our conscious brain often of who we think we are. It is a rapid survival sequence. So, you know, in this, what we say, you know, trauma is not in the event, but Trauma, when somebody feels traumatized, part of our theory is that it is held in the ongoing signaling from the nervous system as if there is a threat or as if overwhelm is still occurring. Or, you know, that we can look at this through this kind of, we call it the threat response cycle. So there's a sound in the environment or anything, and then there is a startle response in the startle response, there's this little bit of energy. We pick up a little bit in the system. It's an excitatory and there's a, and there's stillness in the system. And then we begin to orient. We orient from wide. So you've taken all of your peripheral vision and then we go towards location of whatever the threat is. And then there's an assessment period or whatever the novel stimulus is. Do I approach or do I avoid? So for Glindy, it was up. Oh, I better turn that. I better turn my you know ringer off so it doesn't interrupt the podcast, which you know easy to do. And then it's done. And I imagine Glindy's feeling some kind of level of relief right now. Oh, good. We won't be interrupted again. But approach or avoid. If we deem or our lower brain deems that this is something that we need to, we feel threatened by that we need to protect ourselves from. 
We could go into more social engagement if it's a person or a domesticated animal or, you know, where maybe talking might be a first approach to protecting myself. It could be to speak directly or to have a conversation, but it might be to call for help, right? Or we could move more into mobilization and maybe in a little bit we can talk about the mobilization in the nervous system where we go into more active fight and flight. It could be fight, it could be flight. Again, our lower brain will choose what it thinks will be the best option. And then if that doesn't work or if the situation is too overwhelming, we'll go more into this shutdown place. All systems off, life threat, whether it's perceived or real, and this is a freeze response, a deep freeze response. Now, we have an innate capacity to move through these states and after the threat has passed or in many, for many people living in you know, dangerous conditions or if you are from a marginalized group in a, in a society, we might call it like relative pockets of safety you know, with certain people, certain groups, certain environments where there's more safety, more connection, right? And then our bodies will move through the ability to be able to let go of that highly potentiated state of stress. But human beings block this. We have a very, very good, like our thinking rational brain a lot of the time can get in the way. Can you explain that a little bit more, how it can get in the way and you know, when you talk about the lower part of our brain, that kind of responsive survival brain that keeps us safe or tries to and that we survive, how the thinking brain, why it can't just tell that one to knock it off, you know, I'm good. Like, what is it about the dynamics within the nervous system that we can't kind of think through that or have access to the capacity to to respond in a way that is um, needed for that situation if we over underreact in some ways, as I'm understanding. So oftentimes what we're trying to do is use our neocortex to respond to our reaction or our underreaction or whatever it is. And that's not really the part of the brain that we really need to be courting. And as Pierre Levine likes to say, we need to really court the reptilian brain. And the way that we do that in somatic experiencing is by listening to the language of sensation in our own bodies. And when we do that, we're directly talking to our nervous system. We start to connect with our body's inherent capacity to start to reset and heal the trauma and the patterns that have been initiated by trauma as well as of the patterns of chronic stress that lead to these kind of reactions. So we often have um, people, and this is kind of the old joke, like if you go to the therapist and, and the, the therapist just says, well, just stop doing that, right? There's an old Bob Newhart sketch, which is just stop it, right? That doesn't work, right? Or isn't it the most irritating thing in the world when you're working with something and a friend says, well, why don't you just let it go, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So that would be a, um, a cortical response right, um, to something, a, a, a cortical attempt to try to shift something that's happening, uh, when we actually need to drop in and, and be more part of a bottom-up approach and welcoming that through an inquiry that's at a more animal-based level to really lift our capacity in an embodied way rather than through the mentalization and thought processes that often are trying to problem solve, which 
it's a natural part of our system, right? We want to try to solve problems, and that helps keep us out of danger. We've evolved, actually, to have this negativity bias, to notice what's wrong, and to try to figure it out. But that figuring it out when we're dealing with trauma, it actually leaves us very vulnerable often um, to um, having a repetitive set of symptoms because we're working with um, this later evolved system of our neocortex solely rather than working with this bottom up process that then reintegrates some of these reactions and some of these, the implicit memory here with the neocortex, but we can't start with the neocortex. When we look at how one might say an event has trauma in it or a trauma response, can we tell whether, oh, there's a car accident, that's going to have a traumatic residue, or, oh, well, that's not a big deal, you just fell off the slide, it's not, it's not a big trauma, it's not going to be a problem. Is there a categorization? I know the answer is no, but I think sometimes we think in our mind, and it's a natural way of thinking that some things are bigger T or little t and that some things are easier to overcome than others. So what, what, is, what could be traumatic for people? Yeah. You know, that's, it, there's so many factors within that. So for me, when somebody comes to me and says, I feel overwhelmed, I feel stuck, I'm having challenges in my life that I don't seem to be able to overcome, then I'm going to be looking at not just trauma, but where was their overwhelm for them? And and how is that continuing to affect them in their day-to-day or in their relationships? So if, if anything, I would almost move the word trauma and talk about where we experience overwhelm. And not all overwhelming events lead to a feeling as if they're continuing or that we're revisited by them or that we're in some ways not able to move into kind of the, the core of the manifestation of our our, resi- our own resilience or in who we want to be in the world. So I would become quite curious from, so somatic means body oriented and experiencing is a verb. So it's the experiencing of the body in the present moment. So if somebody thinks about falling off the slide or if somebody thinks about the car accident or somebody thinks about the ways in which they're they're treated because of the gender or race or right mm-hmm. that what happens right here and now in the nervous system what is expressed right so we get to then get very curious about what that internal response is through a process we call it interoception so this is conscious awareness of the bodily sensation and we can notice so you know i talked about that threat response cycle but that's happening in two primary parts of the nervous system so it's split up into the sympathetic nervous system which is for excitation and the parasympathetic nervous system which is for relaxation But if you put the parasympathetic nervous system kind of on into an extreme, it's going to move somebody more into this state of freeze, freeze and immobility. Okay, so we have active protective responses in the high sympathetic, and we have passive defensive response in the high parasympathetic. It's actually a high parasympathetic where all systems shut on off. 
But as someone is speaking about that, we can get a relatively good, I begin to get a good idea of, am I stuck in sympathetic? Is there a fight? Is there a flight response? Is there, am I feeling a lot of freeze right now, even though I'm talking about something that, you know, where I feel like I should be angry, right? Or that I, I, I don't feel like I feel trapped, right? So then what, how can we work with that in the physiology and the here and now for some of this sort of, we call it like a renegotiation, could be a release in the nervous system it could be a motor we call it like a physical pattern of what wanted to happen that didn't get to complete that we can follow in the moment and those kinds of things in our somatic experiencing work often help people to feel differently and we move the neocortex or the thinking brain out of the way which the neocortex to glindy i just wanted to say it, it can often block us from the trauma naturally releasing. Meaning like, you know, when you, if you get real hurt, one of the things that will happen is that your body will let go, we call it shock, right? But it's really more freeze and, and cortisol and stress and adrenaline. And you know, you'll shake and tremble or your teeth will chatter and you kind of go into this, Ooh. and that could be a, a bigger release of a stress response or it could just be like a wave of heat and like a tingliness underneath the skin. And then this kind of, you move through that cascade and then you go, I feel better now. I feel like I survived or I made it or I'm okay now. And, and that's something that we often find with trauma is that the body never really let go, never, it still has kind of protective plans that are in place and so it, it, there isn't that down regulation or that feeling of as if it's over and that whew, I'm relaxed and I'm ready and I'm sort of ready for the next thing because life is full of challenges and traumas. But that's the difference between something being a trauma versus something that it feels like it's placed in the past, even though it's difficult. Maybe I think about something that happened to me and I get teary or I still feel kind of angry about it, but it feels like it's in the past. It's not current. It's not influencing me in this current way. So that's part of my definition of trauma. And it will be very different for different people of what continues to be a block for them. So talking about the overwhelm, that was a really um, great description of where people might come to work with you because there's a sense of overwhelm. Have you seen what in practice that overwhelm might look like to them certain behaviors are is there a physical or emotional dimension and then the second part of it is does that impact beyond themselves in their relationships or how they how they um, work with others or you know engage with others what kind of might somebody see if they're having this kind of overwhelm or trauma that has not been renegotiated Right. So overwhelm can show up either as high sympathetic states, such as excessive fear, excessive anger, rage, panic, panic attacks, anxiety, generalized anxiety is, is a classic one. And it also can show up if you're in those higher sympathetic states for too long, as Abby was talking about, it can also show up in this, these shutdown states. 
So I'll just describe first a sympathetic, some of the sympathetic, high sympathetic symptoms, right? So that would be, you know, it could be nervousness, it could be rapid thoughts, it could be um, jitteriness, it could be also feeling confrontational, you know, uh, having those kind of uh, panicky symptoms, you know, the rapid heartbeat, all the different kind of heightened arousal, the hyperarousal symptoms, sweaty palms, feeling ready, an excessive sense of readiness to react or in being in reaction in a way that does not reset or settle, right? And at a level that's hard for um, containment. So it's hard to be with that in a way where the system then can then come into a settling. So it's different when there is a, a period of, of a little bit of excitation, right? Like a little distraction or a little bit of uh, upset or stress, or even a little bit more than that. And then the system finds its way to deactivate out of that stress and come back into relationship and come back into a sense of easing out of that mobilization of what is essentially, you know, strong survival energy. So, so those are some of the symptoms of that higher sympathetic state. When that goes on for too long and there is this circuit breaker that basically shuts the system down, right? There's this, this flipping of a switch. And then we go more into that um, high tone dorsal state, that shutdown state, which can look more like a disconnection. Sometimes people report it as a sense of deadness or disconnection from other people, a sense of not feeling in the body, not feeling feelings, not being in touch with their feelings, uh, having less access to words, not able to really access thought in the same way, feeling helpless, feeling also um, overwhelmed with any um, idea of moving into action. There can be this immobilizing. Another word for that freeze or shutdown state is immobility or tonic immobility. So there's a feeling of I can't that is happening. And with that, you know, we're having to, again, help people to come back into relationship with their body and to help them come back into relationship with the sense that they can be able to uh, move out of that overwhelm and find that, find that capacity to settle into their nervous system. So in other words, when we have that excessive sense of, of overwhelm that goes into a shutdown. It might be, for instance, that there is a, a quality of numbness, or even sometimes people feel themselves very floaty. Sometimes it's, it's just, they feel just shut off. They hear someone talking, they can't even hear the words anymore. And there's reasons for that physiologically in terms of what's happening. And sometimes there's a witnessing part that's able to be with that. So when that witnessing part is available, and one of the things that we do with somatic experiencing is to help you to, people to develop this um, awareness, this witness part that can be able to access some resources um, so they can be able to do something with that, to move more into more relatedness again. And that's part of the art of SE. So 
I'm really appreciating your clear descriptions about some of these kinds of, I call them potentiated states in the nervous system. Going a little bit more into the second part of your question, Colette, around the impact on relationship. Because, you know, here, I know this, this podcast has a focus on healing individual and collective trauma. So when an individual finds oneself in this state, let me start with individual. There's actually some neural circuitry, which I, I'm not going to go too deeply into considering that this is an introductory podcast. But for those of you who want to know more, too, the work of Peter Levine and the work of uh, Stephen Porges and Deb Dana looks into something called polyvagal theory. And actually, Glindy said dorsal shutdown when she was talking about the freeze response. So within the parasympathetic nervous system, that for like rest and digest, and you know, in that soft rest and digest place where we're kind of down-regulating, this is where we, there's a lot of tissue repair, where we can reduce inflammation in our bodies. It's a really important state, metabolic state, for our health and well-being. So, you know, we're talking about trauma, but we're also talking about increasing capacity for resilience and health and recovery, okay? And so we have in this, this sort of, uh, we have a system that Stephen Porges talks about where we have the, the vagus nerve, which is the 10th cranial nerve. They call it the wanderer because it wanders so many different places in the body. And it innervates um, the dorsal side or the back side, innervates areas in the subdiaphragm. So it's called subdiaphragmatic. Okay? And this has to do with that you are in danger. Something in the environment interprets that we're, and our brain interprets we're in danger, right? By evolution. And we may go into fight or flight, or we might go actually even immediately towards shutdown. And then in that state, the freeze response for a, an animal, right? Many animals survive in, an, in a near-death state. Predators get distracted. You know, they wander off, and the animal might have an opportunity to escape. Or the predator is not interested in an animal that it perceives as dead, Right? And many animals, you know, they'll smear green slime over themselves or they'll make themselves extra stinky. You know, it's like, ugh, I don't want that. And then they, they have this extra added opportunity to survive. We also have numbing, like we have a numbing response called an analgesic response. So if we are injured and hurt, and this is a real, it's, it's a good survival response for us to be able to have. Okay. But if you think if you're in kind of this, they call it thanatosis. If you're in thanatosis and you're trying to talk to somebody about a conflict that you're having, or you're trying to lovingly connect, how in your neural circuitry and your bodily state, how much capacity do you have if your body is really more interested in going into this deep conservation withdrawal response in order to survive? You're not going to have that ability to you know, really have the reciprocity to, to empathically attune, to be able to be open to maybe some of the charge that is coming to you from the other person because they're asking you to, that there's been a rupture and there needs to be a repair, right? So that can really impede 
our ability to communicate, right, and to be available to that. So we need to pull out of that dorsal, we need to kind of come up out of that survival physiology in the dorsal vagal shutdown. Much of the time underneath that is fight and flight or high sympathetic arousal. So we can use some different ways to regulate that high sympathetic arousal, downregulate, and then we've entered into something called the ventral vagal. And that innervates a lot of area in the heart, the lungs, the face, right, for attachment, for connection. And you can think about this as a little bit more like a dimmer switch. So it, it allows us to kind of like dial down the sympathetic a little bit, but then we can let go of that and we can dial up the parasympathetic and dial it down again. And it could be in all different kinds of communication states. So the two examples, quick examples that I like to give is one, you know, it's, this was before the pandemic, but my husband and I both work and we have three little kids. So at the end of the day, we might be super exhausted and it's like the kitchen is a disaster, right? And it's like, who's going to clean the kitchen? Well, we could clean it together, but one of us feels like we get the night off, like we've done enough, it's, it's, we just need to go and like get some early sleep or watch a Netflix show, whatever. So we start to have this disagreement. I was working all day, well, I was working all day, and it's your turn, and you know, oh, we got this and that. So we start arguing. So here, the parasympathetic dial and the ventral vagal is going to be, you know, it's the parasympathetic's turning down, the sympathetic is turning up. But I'm not going to go into complete sympathetic dominance of fight and flight. Because if I was in fight, I'd hit him over the head with a frying pan. That wouldn't be good. Or I might go in flight and drive to Utah, right? I'm like, I'm, I'm out of here. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm going away, which also wouldn't be very good. But it allows us to stay in conflict, hopefully with enough communication for us to feel like there's some repair or there's some choice that we have moving forward. But it also helps us with those excited states. So when I come back from traveling and teaching overseas, and I'm so excited to see my family, and I run over to them with open arms, like, I'm so happy to see you. I don't knock them down. I'm much bigger than my kids, you know. I probably could for, you know, run for, for, force into my partner. Um, but, you know, he might be a bit shocked by that. So it's like I've got to moderate that sympathetic joy that I have. So I turn it down just enough, and I'm like, oh, I'm so excited. But I can, I can hug them in an appropriate way. So this is a really important, this ventral vagal and that ability to kind of dial up and down without being in high sympathetic or without being in freeze. Yeah. And in high sympathetic, you're either fleeing the conversation or you're fighting. You're just going and you're, you know, it's really for the fight. It's not for the, it's not for the relational reward or it's, you know, we can get really stuck in that. So, so part of our goal is to move people more into this ventral vagal capacity or to move through high sympathetic, to move through freeze. We're all going to fight, flight and freeze, but we don't want to get stuck there. So it's interesting. I can imagine as you were talking about the conflict and how it might be something, you know, basic around the house cleaning or who's going to cook dinner. If we were to take that into, let's say, those who engage in reconciliation processes or peace building processes or community engagement processes, working to bring communities together when there, you know, there's a lot of history and, you know, past and ongoing harm, we could say trauma is in the room. 
and when groups are coming together and as you said there could be conflict and as I'm understanding it conflict itself within a zone can be constructive if we would use that word what happens from a nervous system standpoint in rooms like that what might be going on that might derail discussions and as if we use the nervous system language might you know go above a line that could then move into the the fight that is not just the parasympathetic or the sympathetic that could be helpful to get in that conflict resolve but could actually pull apart the seams and make it worse how how do we navigate or before we get to how we navigate how does that dynamic play out you know in in countries in which you've worked in the united states where we have divisions where there might be peace processes or violent conflict or just destructive type engagement yeah so i can start with that so what we do in our nervous systems and how we feel also communicates to others we are always looking and noticing and receiving listening to how other nervous system states are in a group in a room and and because of that we deeply influence each other so if i am feeling uh, connected feeling maybe uh that sense as abby was saying that there may be something that i want to advocate for which is maybe you do the dishes and i don't right but at the same time i'm also still feeling relational and connected there's going to be an effect on the other person in the room or the other people, right? And that, and that goes for, in terms of media, we're watching also, right? How leaders are speaking, how relational their behavior is, their movements, what that tells us about their capacity to work with and acknowledge uh, the other person. So a sense of a relational reciprocity. When that's not there, when we are communicating and we have our moments we all have more than our moments right where we can maybe the ventral's a little bit more dialed down and the sympathetic is a little bit more dialed up and when that's happening there we may be communicating more fight flight energy of what might happen next and we're really in our as mammals we're always attuned to preparing for survival right and noticing those kind of movements the tone all different kind of indicators in the other person that might state or show that they are they may be a threat to me my family or my community so as soon as uh that kind of indication happens right that can influence another person another group and so I'm thinking about some of the work that I did um, in Northern India with Tibetan survivors of torture who were ex-political prisoners. And one of the things that I learned about that culture and, and how they were working with each other is the social engagement piece that helped them through incredibly difficult experiences. And because they had that collective uh, wisdom of their culture and their religion, their spiritual practice, that brought a layer of ventral vagal engagement, social engagement, a sense of, of dampening 
of some of that higher arousal that can happen. And when you have that, there's more likelihood for continued connection and working together to resolve something. So I learned a lot about that with this particular population. And I also really could see as well how when people, and and this is true just clinically in general, when we have more a predominantly cortical cognitive way that we're orienting to a problem, it can easily ramp up. Mm. We can cite theories, we can research the internet and find every different kind of support for our argument. And what might be most missing, however, is that sense of the, the support of the ventral vagal influence that can help us to stay in connection with and recognition that other people, other beings, uh, also have nervous systems too. And that there is through mirror neurons, as uh, I'm not sure if folks listening to this are aware of the term mirror neurons, there's this process that can happen where when one person is doing an activity or moving, and this came from studies with monkeys and and others, but initially with monkeys, where a monkey watching another monkey that had an EEG cap on was able to, you know, just watching another monkey eating was having the same kind of response in the same areas of the brain as as the monkey who was eating or the monkey who's moving so we also have that affectively we can really approximate and have a sense of what another being is experiencing and feeling especially if we have access to that ventral vagal and that brings empathy, it can bring compassion, it can also bring our, our capacity for forbearance, for being able to hold reactivity down to a lower level and keep opportunity open for negotiation, renegotiation, and connecting on a deeper level. Yeah, that's very powerful because you're talking about a process where Many times we instinctively reach for thinking and talking and problem solving from, you know, the neck up. And and we think that that's how we'll think our way out of the problems. And what you're suggesting is a very different type of dynamic, bringing on the relational part and bringing on the rest of our nervous system to work better with other nervous systems in order to, to resolve or address the problem or the division that we're trying to get at. And so I'm curious what your thoughts are on how one might do that practically if, as you've been describing, people are walking into the room with their history, their, their wiring, there could be you know, historical issues. You mentioned working in some countries or a country where there's marginalization that could, you know, lead to, could lead to trauma. And so I'm just curious, how might one, if one is a facilitator or one is working with groups, how might one create um, or support a system that that might strengthen the relational, as you described in Northern India, was more intertwined within their culture? And then what might an individual, what can an individual do so that you're getting those mirror neurons 
in a way that keeps it within a zone where conflict be resolved and we're not heightened into parasympathetic or you know heightened into the um, sympathetic where we're we're pulling apart each other so to speak yeah so I'll just explain a little bit of the way that I, in my dissertation research in northern India, the way that I, I flopped initially was coming in with an agenda and how that didn't work well. And it, it, thankfully, I was working with some folks who were interested in working together as a group with me. So we did a little workshop and these were monks and nuns. Many of them were monks and nuns who were politically active in Tibet. And then they were because of perhaps, you know, waving a flag or uh, having a picture of His Holiness the Dalai Lama, something like that. They were put in prison at often very young ages. And they uh, had, as I was talking before, uh, that sense of engagement through activism they had also that sense of relationship with each other. And so as we met as a group, when I came in with that more cortical idea of I have to get this information out first, and then we can do more of the relating. And they immediately, because they had that sense of advocacy in them, they taught me so much about, you know, this isn't what we want. What we really want to do is talk to each other about our problems because we never get a chance to do that. We've had all kinds of workshops and if we're doing one-on-one Western, more European-based therapy, we're not really doing what we want to do. So we want to have that opportunity. And my intention was to do participant-directed work, right? So they reminded me of what I was there for. So listening, listening to other nervous systems and having a space within ourselves to be able to listen and take a a back seat. If we have that regulation in us, we also may have some space for listening for what another nervous system or nervous systems really need to get across. And what, what, what was the case with this group of Tibetan ex-political prisoners was that that to explore their own strengths as well as share and commiserate about what hasn't been working and to have some long periods of times where they can organize around that. And when I conducted interviews afterwards and I had done individual sessions with them as well, doing somatic work with them. And they said, that was good. Yeah. And it felt good. And I had less symptoms afterwards, but that's not what I'm interested in. I heard this over and over again. It was the group work and the group connection that we need that we've never had and we want more of it. And how can we do that? So um, from a somatic experiencing perspective, a lot of what we were doing is really listening and tuning in for what we call the counter vortex, right? That sense of the resources. So we have often this focus on the what's wrong, which could be, of course, there as we know uh, for survival reasons, right? And that unfortunately, can also mean that we're not taking in some things that can actually help to build our capacity. And that's not just true for individuals, it's true for groups, and it's especially true for groups. And it will help us get more resource so that we can have access to to that healthy parasympathetic and be more in relationship together. And so uh, I think what they taught me was to really return to the, the essence of SE, 
and to st- always start there and with groups to start with that sense of the, the ventral vagal f- and finding resources, finding things that are nourishing, that are helping us feel our own strengths. Maybe it's feeling a, a shared joy. It could be a shared purpose and resonating with that somatically. However you do that. And there's lots of ways to do that through fun, through games, through, you know, different ways and discussions that build that. And then you have a different nervous system, not just individually, but collectively, there is a kind of collective nervous system that starts to develop that is more resilient and has more ability to also work with and respond to stressors in a more constructive way. Abby, maybe you could pick up on that and talk a little bit about some of the qualities that Glindy mentioned that when you are working in a space or working with people, the role, how one defines that role, given we're not looking at something being done to a group, a certain way, a certain technique, it's not a thing, as I was understanding what Glindy was talking about, but getting to the essence and being there defining what does that mean to provide support and what does that look like in practice if um, you know Glendy talked about a number of the really incredible ways of doing that what has been your experience in that realm so I'm going to take almost like a little bit of a different angle here mm-hmm. right because we have sort of a, a bottom-up and a top-down approach you know do you, do you offer information first within a group um, a frame of some kind, or do you work within the group and really follow their needs? And with some groups, especially in the United States, where we have sort of, you know, we do have a Western paradigm of you know science, and I do like to talk about regulation, you know, sympathetic and parasympathetic, and what happens when you get stuck on high, what happens when you get stuck on low, when you're under stress. So that could even be a talking point. For the people in the group that we all have physiology these are the things where i'm really like stuck on high these are the things where i just feel like i'm about to give up because i'm not feeling heard or my community's not heard or seen or so we can begin to kind of look at this stress physiology and how it's affecting us individually and in groups and that we all have this right we're all struggling in with various in various ways so what helps to bring us back towards regulation? That's another good thing to ask groups to start to talk about. So for some people, it's being in my community. It's going to kind of a religious service. It's being with my dog. It's taking a walk. It's mm-hmm. it's activism. It's having a voice. It's right. We can have all of these different ways that sort of help us to regulate. And so we not only talk about how we can all have states, these different kind of states of overwhelm, but we all have different ways of managing it. And that brings together people who might per- be perceiving the other as separate, that we all have this, some similar responses in our nervous systems. And then some of my curiosity and what I like to begin to bring up with groups is that we all have a level of implicit bias. We all have implicit bias. I mean, you do cross-cultural studies, and let's call it that the amygdala or the warning center of the brain will often light up when there's someone that we perceive as different from us. 
I'm just going to say it very generally like that. You know, and the level of threat could be different depending on all kinds of different factors from culture to interpersonal, you know, personal kinds of reactions. But that it it's designed to go, something is, someone is different, pay attention. Okay? Now, slowing down that implicit bias for all people, regardless of who it is who's sitting across from you, I think is really important. When I look at Colette, when I look at Glindy, when I look at, you know, someone from a, a different culture or a different gender, or right, how is my body responding right now? Am I tightening in my core? Am I, am I pulling back in my spine? Have I lost the feeling of the sensation in my legs? Am I already in a fight response, even though I haven't even heard from this person, this individual yet? Like, you know, what's happening in my own physiology? And if I'm stuck low or stuck very high, and, and I'm talking about sympath high sympathetic, where there's sort of like the power over, right, versus what I'm going to talk about in a moment around true power, which is more in that ventral, but it can be in, in a, with a sympathetic tone to it. But what is my response? And then can I regulate, meaning if I'm not feeling my legs, maybe take a moment to just like feel the chair underneath me, move my ankles, feel, um, move around, look around the space so that I know there's nobody that's coming after me right in this moment, but my physiology is primed for the fight. What's the feeling of that? Could I maybe put my hands on my torso or you do a little bit of containment, right? Um, or think about one of those things that helps me to regulate where I just come down out of that stress response. Or if I'm constricted, I'm like, why am I constricting looking at this person? Okay, I'm gonna notice where I feel supported. I'm gonna put my hand in that area. I'm gonna let it soften a little bit. Yeah? Okay, now then, I become more available to what we call feeling felt. And this is in a lot of interpersonal neurobiology and Daniel Siegel's work, but it, and whether we call it empathy, but first I need to be able to feel myself. That's part of the interoceptive tracking. I need to reorganize if I'm in a heightened stress response in any part of that physiology, that I regulate enough that I can feel myself, I can be connected but I can also receive the other. There's enough space for me to receive, to sort of soften enough to hear what the other person might be saying. So there's really like true communication and possibility where there are very different points of view for there to be empathic attunement and some new road for what might a repair look like. Even just being resonated, even being received by the other is a big step. Whether or not you figure out what to do with that right? Then that would be another step to it. But I, one of the, I would say, important things here is that we don't look at slowing down as only the opportunity to downregulate, okay? Because we need advocacy. We need people standing up for, you know, to mobilize for what they believe in. And to make change in society is not a relaxed sort of just sit back and hang out and just let it happen, right? We need to engage. But it's engaged in that organized response of protest, of 
power of voice, of interconnection, and of deep empathy and listening. Because one of the things we know with any kind of like research on extremism is that that people who move into you know what, whatever political party or whatever culture, it's because there's a deep lack of resource. It's you know resource, physical resource. It's emotional resource, right? So we want to be able to take some time, like when with very polarized views. Where is your hurt? Where is your where is your need? Where is my hurt? Where is my need? And how do we begin to soften enough, and then to also mobilize enough, but then soften and mobilize and soften and mobilize so that we feel felt. And that's, again, going to be more in this reciprocity of that ventral vagal capacity. Um, you know, and there's lots of somatic-oriented exercises. I'd say also kind of listening through the body at times during when people are engaged. It's like taking a pause and saying, hey, as you hear this person talking, what's happening in your physiology? Is that my person? If they say, I feel terror. I feel my heart is racing and my mouth is dry and my legs feel poised as if I'm about to run. That's very different information for the people, the person who's, you know, offering a critique and they go, oh, wow, that's well, okay, well, let's take some time, maybe feel the pulling away, put your hands here, feel some support, let your body, you know, maybe push a little bit through the, you know. Uh, have your hands see if you can downregulate or organize that a little bit. Maybe say, I feel, I feel scared right now or I feel overwhelmed right now. And then you ask the person who maybe has been more in fight, how is it to feel that this feels overwhelming for this person? And, and not, not to say that it's, it's, you know, the request is so really important that the other one is making, but the impact, right? And so, so we start to have this reciprocity. And once the person who's feeling all of the fear and flight gets more regulated, they might be more able to hear what the other person is requesting, what the other person is needing. So I would say, you know, slowing down and having some body, physiology, fight, flight, and freeze, kind of teaching your groups how to do some of that so that there's a there's an autonomic listening as a, and an emotional listening rather than the the trying to figure it out that that can really shift the dialogue in a very profound way but we need to slow down with those implicit biases and and recognize that everybody it formulates them and then once we can remove that kind of knee jerk reactions we'll really get to see who it, who is sitting in front of us right now so it sounds much more what you're talking about is more of a multi-dimensional type of approach, whereas instead of meetings, people come in, talk, present, where then we're automatically oftentimes perhaps playing out some of our implicit biases or playing out some of our responses and reactions and, and talking across each other or you know, nervous systems going into different um, states that may not be able to effectively resolve the conflict or to come into a relationship, you're talking about really expanding that aperture and bringing together what both of you said. It's looking at what exists, building on strengths, of course, listening and learning the approach that, that 
is meaningful for that group, whether it's more of an audience who wants information up front, as you mentioned, and doing some education, or whether it's starting with the relationship, but being aware of that. And then what was really interesting that you both talked about is when you're in the group, there's a dimension of the group dynamic and your individual dynamic. And there, there may be exercises, as you said, touching the heart, doing certain things that can help bring some more ease in your system. But there's also witnessing that's going on as the group is meeting. So there's a lot of dynamic things going on that you're talking about weaving this through the groups, their dialogue, weaving it through and bringing the nervous system and how it operates into the room in different ways. That's a whole, that's a really, it's a different paradigm than I think often we're used to in, in meetings or discussions and certainly within dialogues amongst groups or peace processes or reconciliation. So picking up on that, I'm curious what approaches have you found as we kind of wrap up this part of it that have been effective in conveying the power of this approach? Because sometimes it could sound like it's too much work or it's, it, it's not efficient or it's um, too soft in some way. Let's just get the job done and resolve it. How have you found it helpful to convey the, the, that it's actually very powerful um, and hard. It's it's not an easy thing, but it's powerful and, and can be more impactful. Yeah. A lot of times folks hear about engaging with the body and they have no idea what we're talking about, right? It's just not part of their paradigm. And it also can feel uncomfortable to be invited to do something where it actually makes you feel kind of helpless because somebody's giving you a direction and it's hard to know where to go with something if it's if it's new territory and for instance um you know when uh, abby was talking about that that containing touch sometimes working with specific exercises can help people to get an inkling of the experiencing in the moment of what that is. So a little bit more directed intervention rather than just say, well, just feel in your body right now. Well, that may be a, a feeling of a, a blank space because if we're not engaging and particularly engaging in it from a resource perspective where we're entering in in a way that doesn't feel overwhelming, that can be um, a game changer for folks to be able to start to bring that into their relationships and into their work environments, into their activism work. So interoception and this capacity that we can have to notice what these sensations are, our internal state is, is very, very helpful for our overall regulation. And it does take practice and it does take specific exercises that one can do you can do those with groups and have people connect whatever the most basic sensation is one of the most basic sensations that people can access which is also very orienting to our environment is that sense of weightedness in the body that tells us that we are for instance sitting in a chair where do you feel that sense of weightedness that sense of gravity where do you feel that sense in your in your feet that tell you that your feet are on the floor and what happens as you stay in touch with that for a little bit? 
as well as doing a little bit of gentle movement as Abby was talking about. A slight bit of gentle movement also helps our proprioceptors and our joints to be able to locate ourselves in space a little bit more specifically. That again, it embodies us. It starts to change conversations when we're including that. Another thing I want to mention is that there can be uh, something, well, perhaps the most powerful thing is when we are in a more regulated and embodied state and speaking ourselves from our bodies, it's a model. Mm -hmm. Us human beings, we learn through modeling more than anything else. So we really can resonate with and get a sense of, oh, I can do that too. It's a shift in direction, maybe from a more cognitive space solely into including an awareness that is more ventral, that includes that more uh, finer nuance heart, uh, heart rate that may shift through the ventral vagus, that also shifts our res respiratory rate, and it also begins to connect us to our own expressions that signal safety to others so that not only can we see them in other people, they actually can see it in ourselves. And that creates this wonderful connection that is more effortless. But it starts with one person. It starts with one person having that intention. And, and it may be a practice of staying grounded when our, we ourselves may feel a pull to be a little bit more activated or a little bit more... Uh, in a push or in a fight it's like well, wait a minute what else how can i come back into my body and honor oh yes there is this push to get my point across right now because it feels like and it, it may be true that many people's lives are are on the line here and many of these discussions that are happening you know across the world and people trying to advocate for change and can we include in this moment in my body i'm aware that's a fight response and when I'm aware of that, what else can I notice that's not just about that, so we can have a dual awareness and develop that, that I also feel the weightedness in my body, that I also feel as I'm aware of that weightedness, that it starts to downregulate a little bit out of that higher sympathetic state. It doesn't mean that that mobilization goes away completely. We still have energy. We're relaxed and alert and ready. And then from that place, so much can happen. And it just starts with beginning to have some self-awareness and that witness on board. And SE does a lot with that in terms of developing that uh, interoceptive capacity. Yeah, And the power of what you said of oftentimes when one is engaged in work related to peace building or social justice or, or striving for structural changes, the power of regulation within oneself can be sometimes that's enough and and how that can open things up in a way because there's a sense sometimes of needing to somehow fix it all and you're inviting um, inviting to come back to your own nervous system and and that can then as you mentioned radiate out and have an impact on those around you that right and that can simple. create a wonderful embodied conversation mm -hmm. yeah, absolutely Different than a disembodied conversation. <laughs> Absolutely. Abby, you had something Yeah, I think this is a it really, it, it's interesting because it depends on how process-oriented your group is. So we're not going to necessarily going to have these times where you're going to ask 
you know, you're, you're, you're there and there's some sort of law that's being passed and you're asking, you know, representatives to pause and notice their bodies, right? It, it, it kind of depends. Other times there's truth and reconciliation groups. There are people who are invested in this deeper process. So in those, you can really teach some of the interoception and you can invite this as a, a paradigm, one window in which to kind of slow down and for each person to kind of to check, like Glindy brought in grounding, right? You could do some containment. You could think about your resources and just shift your own physiology. Everybody takes a moment to shift their own physiology and to regulate or to organize into their response and to notice the impact, right, between peoples. And then we have something that I call stealth SE. So this is more like, you know, you, you as a facilitator, you might take a moment when things get real hot in the room to say, everybody take a pause before we hear the next response and, and you know, look around, take a moment to reflect on how this feels, but not only reflect, check in, check internally, take a moment to kind of reground yourself, to reconnect to why you're here, why we're here. Look around at the people in the room and notice there are people who want to change our world, maybe in different ways, right? But look around in the community and then and and just take some time before we have the next comment. Feel the quality, you know, of, of what we're creating here. Here's some of the things that we're, we've done. Here's some of the things of where we're moving. Here's where we've made some shifts already. So you could focus on some of the positive change, potentially, that that group or some of some of the choices that group has made. Maybe there hasn't been this understanding, but I want to really honor the way that everyone is sitting and reflecting and hopefully receiving some of what's being shared here. So take some time. Not only you got the point across, but take some time to see if you can receive some of what you've heard. So you can say it, it's a little cognitive, but your pacing, where you interrupt, where you invite people to take a moment, where you invite them to come back into the collective, where they've already made some change and can they sense into that there's some, some work that's being done. Mm -hmm. And you know whether you say pause and notice your body or just pause and reflect and kind of check to see how that feels inside because we're also feeling the change we're doing this because we feel so there's little tiny kinds of interweaves that you can bring into a process even when it's going to be um, with people who aren't going to be open to learning about interoceptive or their emotional responses um, and and there's a lot of really good somatic experiencing videos dr peter levine has several youtube videos if you want to learn more about some somatic exercises you can look at those. I have a somatic exercise that I actually was just on YouTube looking at, and I saw it's like one of the first pops that comes of me on YouTube, and I have a kind of like a, you know, a grounding and checking into your essential self, a kind of, uh, you'll hear some of the languaging that we offer for people, and you certainly can study more about somatic psychology, somatic experiencing, um, or, or any of these approaches by delving a little bit deeper there we have a our somatic experience in trauma institute glindy and i are both faculty so you could come and study with us 
um, for one module, for you know, the first year, if you really love this work. And you can also just continue to gather little bits of pieces and apply for what you feel is most useful for you. And you're really talking about meeting an individual or group where they are and finding ways to make this work useful or helpful in a way that makes sense to them, even if it has a little bit of a cognitive piece, as you mentioned it. And, and if there's process-oriented, how you work with the group is going to be different than if there's already a relational angle. It's really just honoring where people are and how what can be processed and, and heard in an effective way. Well, thank you very much to both of you for taking time to be on the Think Peace podcast. And before we end, I wanted to give each of you an opportunity to provide any parting words that you might have for listeners who are interested in the issues of trauma and how that knowledge and um, how to work with it can help bridge differences and build peace. So anything you want to say on how, how that can happen in the world in one sentence, go for it. Or two, two or three sentences. Don't want to limit. I just want to uh, also let people know on the traumahealing.org website, there's also the uh, SE Community Conversations. That is uh, myself and other faculty, including Abby Blakesley, and we are exploring different ways of regulating, especially during the challenging times this year. And part of that, there's many ventral vagal exercises that we talk about. There's embodiment exercises. So it's another resource for folks out there. And I would just say, you know, in our conversation today, I think what I'm hearing the most right now and what's resonating with me during these times is um, how important it is to listen. And when we bring that intention to listen and include, from an embodied place, it can change the world. It can change uh, relationships one at a time. And it also uh, is infectious, a good kind of infection. So uh, I wouldn't underestimate for everyone out there how, what our stances in our nervous system, it speaks volumes and it can catch in terms of the dynamics that are happening in the world today. I think we need that so much. So intention does matter and embodiment matters. Yeah, thank you, Glendy. That, that was beautiful. And Abby, what would you like to share? Well, I wanted to share that when Glendy was sharing, I noticed this kind of like a, a wave of energy kind of charge, but in a nice way, like almost like a shimmery, glimmery kind of op open feeling. I was feeling some settling down through my head and my spine. And so I was really just receiving the, the hopeful message that she was sharing. So I wanted to model that. That's part of listening, that's part of receiving, that's part of resonating. And then I have this other part of like, let's do it, let's change the world. <laughs> you know, this sort of mobilized part um, where I do really see, you know, the danger and the damage of othering that's going on. Um, the the uh, oppression and victim and perpetrator dynamics, all of these things that are 
um, in our world that if we can really teach some of these embodiment skills to anyone, to everyone, to slow down, to recognize what's kindled, in, we call it a kindling response, what's kindled, and, and is this helping to get my point across? Is this, is, uh, do I need this in my survival physiology right now? And then if we can all work to shift little by little, right? Little by little, it's not all going to shift right away, right? But little by little, you know, come together in a new way. And I think of rupture and repair cycles. So there's rupture, and then there's the possibility for there to be a repair. And then there's going to be rupture again. It's individual and it's collective. So we have these opportunities for there to be a more repair. And each time there's a repair, the relationship builds at a higher order, right? The, the potential for there to be conflict and connection and resolution and understanding of differences and movement towards respect and dignity for all, right? We build and build capacity towards that. So uh, I also just want to say it's an honor to be here on this peace podcast i'm so excited of the work that you're doing in the world colette and uh, i'm really really happy to be a part of it so thank you for the invitation and thank you to all of the listeners for all of the wonderful work that you're doing and the curiosity that you have in coming together and spending some time with us Thank you, Abby, and thank you, Glendy. And I am feeling my system, <laughs> feeling very um, warm and open and a sensation of, um, if it had a word, it would be hope. Because hearing what you're saying um, and, the, and the descriptions and the way you conveyed it helps one see that there are ways that an individual through how they're working with their system and what they bring into the world can make a difference and that all of this stuff out there may seem overwhelming in conflict dynamics, but it can come back to um, the regulation of a person and the power that that could bring. And taking care of self-care um, can be one of the most um, powerful things that one can do while they're out there in the world. Um, working for justice and working for peace. So thank you very much for sharing um, all of your experiences and your wisdom. And thank you for being on Think Peace podcast. Thank you so much, Colette. Thank you. Thank you for joining us this week for the Think Peace podcast, where peace crosses the mind. Please visit our website, www.thinkpeacepodcast.com where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or via RSS so you'll never miss an episode. Be sure to tune in next week. And remember to think peace.